Well, you may have already figured it out that we're going to talk about love this morning. We've sung about it. We've talked about it. It's clearly an important piece of being a Christian. But where, where does that love come from? And what does that love look like? That's really what we're going to talk about. Is where does it come from? Is it the kind of thing where you just sort of close your eyes, squeeze your fists, and it comes out? Or is there something more to it than that? How does, what does love look like? How are you going to tell if you have it or not? If you are actually loving other people like you should or not? Well, in order to answer those questions, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Romans chapter 12 is, as you may recall, the, it's the practical side of Romans. It's the side of Romans that, that illustrates for us what Christian living looks like. And, you know, if you were to divide Romans in parts, the first part is the, the doctrinal part, the part that says that everyone is uh, lost and desperate in their sin and need a Savior. And then there's a, the, the part where it explains that Jesus, in fact, does come to satisfy God's anger toward our sin and to reconcile us to Himself and to make peace with God. So there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And it's just about as good as it gets. And then the, the middle part is how God is taking uh, those people whom He has rescued and making them into a community uh, of very different people. Some were Jews, some were Gentiles. They didn't like each other. He's making them a community of faith nonetheless. And then Romans 12 and following is what it looks like to live in that community. Because that community is, I think, God's aim in saving us. He didn't just save us so that we could sort of skip the next several years and get to heaven. He saved us so that we could live the rest of our lives in community with other people whom He's rescued so that together we travel to heaven and enjoy it all the more. And so that's what we find in Romans chapter 12. That practical aspect that says this is what it looks like when the, the truth of the Gospel has taken root in your life and uh, grows. Romans chapter 12, begin reading in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction or tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Well, here you have it really in list form because that's how it's structured. A list of what it looks like to love as Christ has loved you. What it looks like to live in the community of faith and it really does function as a list. The first item in the list is let love be genuine. 
which serves as sort of the topic sentence or the heading for all the rest that follows. That all explains to us what love looks like. But before we get to what love looks like, it might be good to, to, to step back and say, okay, where does love come from? Because it's one thing for it to look right and for us to try and try and try to make that happen and then throw up our hands and say, well, it, it's beyond me. But I want to suggest to you it's not beyond you because of the way that God works the love into our lives. And so, uh, picking it up just a few verses earlier in Romans chapter 12, uh, he starts off this practical section by linking it with the Gospel. By linking it with the doctrine. By linking it to the good news that God has shown mercy to people who didn't earn God's mercy. That God has shown grace and favor to people who didn't deserve grace and favor. And so, he begins by saying, I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God. There is no Christian living without, first of all, Christian being. You become a Christian. You are a Christian because you have received mercy from God. It's to humbly say, you know what? I am not the performer here. I am the receiver. And when you get your place in God's program right, then you recognize, you know what? Everything that happens as a Christian comes to me from God as something I don't deserve. And it's absolutely beautiful. That's what, that's the, the foundation of Christian living is Christian believing. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's the foundation. And I don't want to ever build without going back there because it's that that gives it stability. It's that that gives us the, the ability to live this way. Otherwise, we're just making it up. Otherwise, we're just doing what anybody else might do apart from the living power of God within us. So the appeal is because of the mercies of God. The foundation is God's grace and mercy. And then he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is your logical response to the worth of God. To say that to honor Him as His worship, you might say. That's what we're doing. Is we are logic, We're connecting the dots. That's what He wants us to do. Connecting the dots from the mercy. What do I do with mercy? The logical thing then is for me to commit myself to Him, so that He's no longer a hobby. He's God is no longer some exterior um, satellite in the orbit of my life. He's at the center, and that is that. Uh, is the logical response or the spiritual response I have to the fact He's shown me mercy. Now, if I get those two things right, the mercy and my response, well, then it becomes a much different game to live as a Christian. And He continues to, to, to build this uh, chain with these various links of the mercies of the commitment. Then he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So you, you have a, a different way of approaching the world. A different way of thinking about the world that is generated in you by God Himself. So that by testing, you might discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. 
And so as part of your commitment, you are, con- you are transformed. You're being transformed. That would be uh, my expectation of myself. should be your expectation of yourselves that God is at work in my life. And then he kind of then he gets to more to our point here when we're getting uh, to talk about love. He says, "What happens when you believe in Jesus? When you receive the mercy of God and commit yourself to Him, is that you begin to think about yourself differently? All of a sudden, I am now thinking of myself uh, in a way that is not like I used to think about myself." That is at the heart of what it means to be a loving person. And he sets the table here by saying, For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly than you ought to think about yourselves, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God's given. So we're to think about ourselves in the proper way. Not being overly inflated, not being you know, uh, underly uh, disappointed, but to think of ourselves soberly. What does that look like? Here's a context for sober thinking about yourself. I want to think about myself because God has, uh, just like one body has many members and all the members don't have the same function, so we too are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So how does God want me to think soberly about myself? He wants me to think soberly about myself so that I recognize that I belong to you and you belong to me and we belong to one another. That's the sober thinking. That's the the way that God wants us to think about ourselves. So He's changing our fundamental identity. I am no longer a solo person doing a solo thing. Everything I do now affects all the other members of uh, the body of Christ. All the other members of me, really, one another, right? And then he goes on to list some of those things that those different members do, which is, uh, in some regard, just extra. But he sets us up then to say, the thing you need to think about with other people is that you love them. Let your love be genuine. That's, that's the starting point. And so as you can think of it as the header of the rest of the paragraph, like I said, let love be genuine. Don't fake it. Literally, literally this is let love be unhypocritical. The, the, the literal translation would be unhypocritical. Now, I say that because all of a sudden when I say that, it does alert us to the problem, doesn't it? The problem is that uh, one of, if not the main objection to Christianity is that they're all a bunch of hypocrites. They're all just putting on a mask. They're all just playing games. They're all just pretending to be something that they're not. They're all pretending to be better than they are. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, And in some respect, that's probably warranted because the lead element in this is let your love be unhypocritical. And so we're to think of ourselves in a new way. To think of ourselves now as a loving person, as a loving group, instead of thinking of ourselves in terms of just me. 
Now I'm going to say, this doesn't come real naturally to me. I'm probably not alone there. probably comes hard to all of us. It is a hard one thing to belong to a community. To be part of a team instead of be the, uh, the hero. I was reading a book uh, this past year uh, called Divided We Fall about Christian unity. And he, he said this, and I, I pull it in here because it, it fits so well with the argument here that he's building in Romans. We should first think of ourselves as lovers. Being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs into our head in order to guarantee proper behavior. Rather, it is a matter of being the kind of person who loves rightly, who loves God and neighbor and is oriented to the world by the primacy of love. So what this does then is this really throws us back to the question, where does love come from? If I'm to to conceive of myself to have a different identity than just this solo guy who runs through life bouncing off of circumstances, but rather I'm supposed to be part of a community, and it's hard for me, how am I going to do that? Well, here here is the where... This is where it comes from. This is the place it comes from. And he's already talked about it in Romans, right? It comes because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom has been given to us. God is in the business, God the Holy Spirit is in the business of making sure you were reminded and saturated with the love of God. Which is one of the reasons that for the most part we sing about God's love for us and we gather on Sundays and we remind ourselves of God's love for us not our obligation to do things for God, but rather God's love for us. Because that's where, that's where love comes from. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then he continues in that same text and says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for one, uh, for one would die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person you might even dare to die, but God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the rehearsal all of the time, week after week, day after day, of Christ dying for us, is the, it is the expression the capstone of God's love for us. Now right here gives us just a little bit of what we should expect in this community. In the community of faith known as the church of Jesus, we want to say, oh, I'm going to like everyone. Oh, everyone's going to be easy to get along with. When in fact, the the opposite is probably true. People are probably going to be hard to get along with. The love, the, the unhypocritical love that God wants from us is not going to come without a cost. It's going to cost me to love you. It's going to cost you to love me. And we should expect that because it costs God to love us, you see. The love that God had for us did not come cheap. And I don't think love ever does, really. 
But God shows His love and that Christ died for us. And then He just goes on to, to help us not escape the fact that you are just wondrously and gloriously loved by God when He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. And then a couple of verses later, in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor, nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. You see, he's gone out of his way to say the most fundamental thing about you is that you are loved by God. The most important thing about your new identity is that whether you feel like it or not, whether you're in a good circumstance or bad, whether you are struggling or happy, you are loved by God at the enormous cost of His Son. And He didn't back down and He won't back away. And there's nothing you can do nor anything else can do to separate you from the love of God. And so your new identity is that I am gloriously loved by God. So it's not a surprise then that the community He's building of people who trust in His Son is a community where they love one another. Let your love be without hypocrisy. That's where it comes from. And the way that it's developed is, is more and more being convinced that I, in fact, am loved overwhelmingly by God. Now, what does it look like? That really is what this paragraph is about. This non-hypocritical love, what does it look like? The first characteristic of this non-hypocritical love is to abhor what is evil. Isn't that interesting? To abhor what is evil. That's his first call. That's his first thing. The first characteristic of love that's not hypocritical is a hatred of evil. Now think about it. What he, I think what he's talking about here is that your response to evil is to have this visceral response that just uh, twists your stomach. Some of you had that. Some of you see evil things maybe on the news and just say, that's awful. That's the response. You see, it's hypocritical to love evil, to practice evil, to enjoy sin, and then to claim to be loving. So in order for it to be really unhypocritical, you have to say, I'm with God here. What is, what, what is evil, I don't like. So I mean, this, this Sunday has been designated as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Where we remember the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade and the whole idea, really, of taking another human life should be abhorrent. It should give you that pit of the stomach hurt that he's talking about here. 
And not just that. You see, you see things on the news all the time that should just break your heart where you have this visceral response. Hey, I mean, just to become acquainted with the precious little baby who's just a few weeks old and she's in the foster system and never seen a baby before that I remember that's a couple weeks old and nobody has a plan for her life. And nobody says, this is, this is what it will be like three years from now or five years from now or twelve years from now. And I just, when I realized that, it was just heartbreak. It's that heartbreak that he's after. That's that response to evil. In fact, I mean, the letter starts with this kind of, it starts with a list of the things that ought to break our hearts. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil. Covetousness and malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God. I mean, that visceral response, I just love that little part right there in the middle. Gossip, slanders, gossips and slanders. Does it, when you hear somebody saying something you know you ought to not say, or you actually let something out that you shouldn't have said, does it give you that gut wrenching feel? Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then see, he, he says the problem is the opposite of what we're talking about in, verse, in chapter 12. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, giving approval is the opposite of abhorring it. You see, we live in a world, we live in a world where approval of evil is expected. In fact, in fact, a lot of the entertainment that is, uh, shall I say, foisted on us is a celebration of things on this list, isn't it? Things that we should hate. And they want us to cough up twelve fifty or fifteen bucks to go watch it. And so I just want to suggest that the start of this love is to feel about evil like God feels about evil. And that's one of the things that makes love unhypocritical. I just want to say one other thing because I do hear, um, I hear people talk about love and I'm, I'm thinking in particular now about young uh, men and women who are in love, right? And maybe a dad will ask the daughter, well, does he love you? And uh, she'll say, oh, of course he loves me. But he doesn't want necessarily to do pure and honorable and good things with her. He has intentions of doing with her things that were on the list. And he's done enough nice things to her that she thinks he loves her. You know what? And I would just say to any of you who think about love that way, that is a hypocritical love. Don't buy, don't buy it when someone says they love you and does not have pure motives toward you. That's the first characteristic of love. 
second is to hold fast to what is good. The first is hate what's evil. The second is hold fast to what is good. The, uh, the, the Greek word here is literally to cling to. It's a word that is, is used to, to translate the, the very first marriage. To, a man is to leave his father and mother and to cling to his wife or to hold fast to his wife. That's what you're to do with good. The word is used of um, people who would join with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. You are to join with what is good. And so the invitation that he's giving for you and for me is to, is to distance ourselves from evil and to join in what is good. In fact, this could really be that simple, couldn't it? Where you just take this little moment between what you see and and what you have to do and you think, is it good or not? And you set out and you do what is good. You choose what is good. And you choose what is good toward other people. How can you help other people experience good? It's what the community does. As you think about this, this is one of those places where true love makes a difference in the world. I I mean, the history tells us that that Christianity doing this has changed the world. Uh, In the in the book, the the rise of Christianity uh, by a, a, a secular author he cites the fact that Christians believed good and rejected pagan sacrifices, pagan practices, uh, pagan rituals, and they did what was good. And they, they honored each other and they honored women and they believed that life was sacred. And the church went from 120 people in Acts chapter 1 to taking over the Roman Empire in 400 years. Because the church did this. When William Wilberforce in England said, I am committed to what is good, slavery was abolished. It cost him his health and his life, but he clung to what was good and they got rid of slavery in England. Christianity changed the world by holding on to what is good. That's what he says happens in this transformation of experiencing the mercies and being transformed so that you might know what is good. That's what we're after. How can I be and believe and do what is good? The end of the book, he wraps up. In fact, it's the very last thing in the book, uh, just about, when he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. It picks up the very themes he's talking about here and and he ties it up and said, this is really what the community needs to be about. Hating what's evil, being innocent to what's evil, and being wise to what's good. Notice, as you study what's good and as you work at what's good and you're innocent towards evil, the spiritual effect of that 
The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Are you concerned that Satan has a foothold somewhere in your life? Commit yourself to what's good. Hate what's evil. That is part of what it will take to crush Satan under your feet. Well, those are the first two characteristics, sort of the, the, the heads and the tails of uh, good and evil. The, the third characteristic in the next verse is to love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. This is a little bit hard to translate because there are two words here that are uh, so... Uh, well, almost redundant that it makes it really hard. The, the first is Philadelphia, which you know because it's a city of brotherly love in Pennsylvania. But the first Greek word is Philadelphia. Love the brothers. The second word is like it, and it's essentially the word love the family. So love the brothers with the love of the family would be one way you might attempt to translate this. Or love one another with brotherly affection, or be devoted. Other translations said, "Be devoted to one another with brotherly love." And if you think about it, that is the difference, isn't it, between your family and people not your family? You love the people not your family, but you don't put up with quite as much from them as you do with the people who are your family. You sacrifice a little more for the people who are your family. You're inconvenienced a little more by the people who are your family. And what he says here is this unhypocritical love is that kind of family love for the body of Christ. For the community. Where I sacrifice for you, you sacrifice for me. We are devoted to one another. And we love one another as though we were family. What a beautiful gift to give one another. The thing is, we're not really giving it. It's already given. I mean, in Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, he says, one of the side aspects, one of the benefits of trusting the mercy of God, when God says, I love you, and you say, okay, I will let you love me. I believe that you love me. When that happens, you become a child of God. As many as believe in Him, He gave the right to become the children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Unthinkable. Romans chapter 8 reminded us we were enemies of God. Now, because of Christ, we are children of God. What a change. What a remarkable thing. And the interesting thing about it is that my father is your father. And you know what that makes us? Brothers and sisters. Members of the family, we are to love one another with a familial love. And so, 
one of the ways that it looks, it looks like it's family love. It looks like it's devotion. It looks like it is an affection that belongs in the family. And again, that doesn't happen easily without sacrifice, without time, without the, the kind of engagement with one another and connection to one another that ultimately you have with family. And then this fourth characteristic of love that is um, unhypocritical is to outdo one another in showing honor. I, 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 I love this translation. It's maybe not how I would pick the translate, but outdo one another sounds like a little bit like a competition. That's why I like it. It's like, oh, Yuri, you think you're good at honoring? Wait till you see what I'm going to do. Right? Outdo one another in showing honor. Probably, probably rather than competing and you know, trying to one-up one another, though that would be of all the competitions I can think of you should enter, enter that one. Probably a better translation would simply be take the lead in showing honor. Be first to show honor. When it comes time to show honor, go first. That's what he's saying. Don't let somebody else beat you to the punch of showing honor. And if you think about it, it is, it is a beautiful thing. I mean, we've built several things into what we call manners, right? That have to do with honoring. That's why we honor. That's why you might you might stand when somebody comes into the room and you're going to shake their hand. You could reach them from the ground, but you stand to show honor when you're going to shake their hand. It's why you would stand and give your, your seat to an elderly person. Because it's a way of showing them that they have honor or that they have a place in the community. It's why you would open the door for somebody and let them go first. And so, we outdo one another, he says, in showing honor. Uh, I ran across this definition of honor that I, that I thought was useful. Because honor is a person's social worth. It's one's value in the eyes of the community. Honor is when other people think well of you, resulting in harmonious social bonds in the community. Honor comes from relationships. There you go. We're to think about ourselves as lovers, right? And what happens then is the, the love in those relationships translates into honoring one another. Helping other people recognize they are important. I, I start off by saying this isn't easy. This doesn't come naturally to any of us. I... Uh, I had just yesterday, I had a conversation with myself about this. I have conversations all the time about these things. Because some of, some of it is, some of the problem is I know what I ought to do. And my heart isn't always in it. And so, uh, yesterday, we had, we had some people over and uh, they left, and there was dishes in the sink. Okay, and my problem was there was also a sermon to get ready. Not everyone has that problem, but it's like my special problem that I can use that I can use anytime I want, right? 
Because it never, there's always one coming up. Well, it's Saturday night and dishes in the sink and I'm thinking, I really need to, I really need to work on this here today. And so I, I went in the living room and I began to think, now, how am I actually going to say this? Like, I'm going to work on my sermon and not do the dishes. And I have this conversation in my head about, am I going to do the dishes or am I going to work on my sermon? And, and actually, I, you might say I won that conversation because I went in the living room and started to think about my sermon. And I, uh, you know how far I got in, right? Outdo one another in showing honor. I thought, what? Why is that this week? Why could that be a different week? And so, I went in and I, I, thankfully, before I'd made any announcement of my intentions, I went into the kitchen. There's like seven minutes worth of dishes. There's like nothing. And I was going to use this big excuse, this big spiritual excuse, right, not to do it. But the reality is, Marsha had worked almost all day to get ready for that event. She'd cleaned the house, she'd cooked food, and here were seven minutes of dishes that I was going to say, no, I'm, I'm somehow above that today. That's what he's talking about. You go first. You go first in showing honor. You go first in saying, you're important around here. You be, the, you be the one who says first that you matter to other people. That's what he's talking about when he says, outdo one another in showing honor. And so as you think about it, if you think about it, this is just the very first, first couple steps, really, in what it means to live Christianly. What it means to live Christianly is that you live in community. You think soberly about yourself as part of a community of people you belong to. People that you love in a non-hypocritical way. And you live with them and and love them in a non-hypocritical way because you've committed yourself to Christ. You've presented your body a living sacrifice. And you are not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've committed yourself to Christ. And you've committed yourself to Christ because you have been thoroughly convinced, in fact, immersed by the love of God in Christ. Because God has demonstrated His love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's where the love comes from. That's where the love comes from. And when it comes out, it looks like honor. It looks like choosing what's good and rejecting what's evil. It looks like being devoted. And it looks like, what? Eight other things coming up in the rest of this uh, section that we'll talk about next week. And the thing is, the thing is, this is much easier said than done. May God help us to do as we say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You have not given us just this random self-reformation project. You are not telling us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or to, to try a little harder. Instead, You are reminding us over and over that You love us. That Your love is lavish and overflowing. And Father, I pray that some of it would leak out to other people. That You might 
Help us to be known as those who honor one another and put others above ourselves. Who love good and hate evil. And Father, as we do that, may we be more secure. But Father, more than that, may Jesus look more glorious because His church loves one another. We thank You in His name. Amen.